it's empowering people to do things faster, better, smarter. And when you give people that power, they will adopt. But right now the resistance is coming from the fact that people have a, some intuitive response that Google and Facebook have a different agenda, which is not human enablement, it's business model enablement. And that's why, <laughs> that's why there are cameras and privacy concerns and all this other stuff hindering the adoption of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But hopefully my company will be able to show that you don't need any of that to have a successful business model. And that, in fact, you can kind of give people some superpowers. It's like we can give people a little bit of the Iron Man helmet and see what they can do. That is much more kind of enticing and exciting than trying to be dragged off somewhere else, right? Everyone's fighting over, come here, come to Instagram, come to right. Facebook. Right. You should be on LinkedIn. You should be everywhere. You should be doing this. You should be in the metaverse. You should. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to, hey, you already ride your bike. <laughs> hey, you already run five times a week. You already swim. You already, you're doing these things already. Yep. And you blame those things that we love to do already and making us better at them, right? Who doesn't want that? Right. And I love that idea of, of kind of, su of superpowers, you know, giving people superpowers. So I'm having some fun. Welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast. Uh, I am Maureen Schaefer, your host. And every week we are turning to the leading lights in medical device, med tech, and health tech world to learn how to improve our messaging. And today we're here with Mark Prince. Uh, Mark has 20 years in the consumer retail and health tech space. He was most recently CEO of Cardio, a remote patient monitoring company with a consumer devices business unit. Before that, he was the vice president of consumer business at Withings, a pioneer in the consumer connected health products segment. And uh, I found this very interesting in his bio that during his academic days, one of his favorite projects was selling Nerf-branded protective covers to the Apple store. Uh, Mark is joining us from his home near Boston. Mark, it is wonderful to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. So, and, and welcome to everyone who is watching and or listening today. I start the Message Engineering Podcast with... Uh, define with a define the word warm up. So I'm going to give you a word, and then you respond with how how you see the word. How you define the word. First word is unsurprising. It's marketing. So I love that word. Um, I had um, I had a professor in business school that gave me a definition of marketing that's really stuck with me, and it immediately comes to mind. Um, she, I think, was looking to cultivate marketing leaders and get people to think broadly. And so she said, marketing is everything. And meaning that in a, a sort of an organizational business context, mm -hmm. marketing is how we bring things to market. It's everything we do from operations and production and R&D and innovation. It's human resources. Um, there's internal and external marketing. 
It's how you relate to your investors, your shareholders, and it's certainly the process of um, packaging and delivering product sales and all of the usual things that go with that end of the business. And I, I think that this definition has really served me well. And it's encouraged me to think outside of silos and, mm-hmm. um, and take responsibility for bringing a company to market. So there you go. My definition is marketing is everything. I like that definition. <laughs> Great. Uh, next word is sales. Well, sales is, I think, a little bit more discreet, and it is the process of um, delivering product to market, most specifically. And you know, there's the beginning of the process of prospecting all the way to actual delivery and and support um, sales. I think most discreetly is quantifying customer engagement via revenue or units. Um, so maybe that's a little little dry, maybe not quite as ambitious as the marketing definition, but um, I think some people would also say sales is relationships. It's, it's relationships with the people who use, consume, um, engage with whatever it is you do. I love that idea of measuring uh, that sales is measured in revenue, which is really an indicator of engagement mm. uh, of folks. I love that idea. Uh, third one, message or messaging. So messaging, um, my, my definition of messaging would be uh, maybe another way of saying positioning. But it is the the method by which you very purposefully create a story and a description Mm -hmm. of what you do and how it fits into the world and how it benefits the people that you intend to engage. Mm. Lots of engagement. (laughs) The last one's engagement. No, no, the last one's not engaged. I'm like, you keep engagement keeps working its way into your definition of, of uh, sales and messaging okay. and, and marketing. And I think that's that is super critical, right? If the community or the audience or the consumers uh, are not engaged in what you're doing and what you're offering and what results it brings, mm. what's, what's the point? <laughs> totally. I mean, I think that's why there are so many, I don't want to say new but maybe newish KPIs that measure engagement. So in, in classical marketing from 50 years ago, you had messaging and positioning, which is just creating a unique statement or mm-hmm. a vision for who you are, what you are, why it's valuable. But now we have ways of measuring it, um, which I think have been increasingly in vogue since everything went digital Mm -hmm. 20, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so now we can measure, Uh, we can measure advertising in ways that we never really could 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so engagement can be quantified. It's fantastic. It is fantastic. (laughs) I love that. Uh, I love that part of it. When my engineering background being able to quantify whether something's working or not is, is critical. 
right? You know what to do more of and what to do less of. Right. One, yeah, with the appropriate measurement. So uh, bonus, bonus phrase. Uh, how would you define, there's so much talk about this, everyone uses it and thinks about it a different way, but how would you define consumerization of healthcare? Mm. So I think, you know, obviously this our agenda for today, and I've been thinking about, there's so many ways to approach this. I, I think what I'd like to stake out as my position is the humanization of healthcare. Um, I'm not comfortable with the term consumer. Uh, okay. I'm also not sure that the term patient and consumer are interchangeable. And uh, in software, I'm not really a big fan of the term user. Mm-hmm. I think what I'd like to think uh, consumerization of healthcare healthcare implies is the humanization of healthcare in which we start to anticipate a more one-to-one relationship with patients mm-hmm. and in which patients have a lot more influence and maybe even control over what's mm-hmm. happening in terms of their engagement with their mm-hmm. providers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it, at the end of the day, it's not just about this anonymous patient or st- mm. statistical individual. It's more about an, an individual uh, who is a real person, who is human, who has very individual needs, and who can increasingly um, do their own diligence and objectively assess the quality of service of care that they're receiving and even make choices about it. Um, I think some of the things that, that uh, indicate this, are what happens when Angie's List uh, or Yelp um, really get their teeth into healthcare? It's starting, um, mm-hmm. but what happens when individual practitioners, not just surgeons or PCPs, but what happens when mm-hmm. RNs have reviews? Um, what happens when your pharmacist, your individual pharmacist by name, not just some mm-hmm. arbitrary location of an individual store, has reviews? Um, what happens when collectively all these individuals really begin to share their opinion and their expectations? I think mm-hmm. the consumerization of healthcare implies all of these things and some other things. Um, but I, I don't like to think of uh, healthcare as a commodity that's simply being consumed. And so I'm not entirely comfortable with the, the phrase consumerization of healthcare. Um, I think there's much more depth in, in healthcare and life sciences in general. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's sort of stood apart to some extent from typical consumer practices for so long. Um, so that's, that's a preliminary answer. That's a down payment on this discussion. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I, what I think is fascinating, right, is that historically we've referred to that group of people as patients, right? And that, that implies a certain power structure, mm-hmm. and a certain decision-making, right, and a certain hierarchy. Uh, and so I've seen lately a lot more use of this idea of healthcare consumer, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which kind of throws it in the other direction. Um, but it does some of the things you're, t- you're speaking to, which is this idea of treating, you know, all COPD patients, for example, as a monolith who all think and move the same. Mm-hmm. Um, as does some of the things that marketing has done in the past with, and whether you call them personas or avatars or you know, whichever label you apply to them, there's some grouping of them. Mm-hmm. Whereas where it seems like where you're going is this idea of almost individualization and choice, like really putting them at the center of information gathering, choice making. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me a little bit. Can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. more about the individual and uh, you said consumer doesn't apply well, uh, patient doesn't apply well, throwing people in these big groups and assuming they all behave the same is, that's not true, <laughs> simply put. Uh, so how, how should we be thinking about them when we're doing, you know, in marketing and we're segmenting folks and trying to understand the market mm. before we're building our message, like in advance of building our message? What's a better way to look at them? Mm. So I guess uh, I'll take a, a non-healthcare, non-life sciences example to start the answer to the question. Um, no matter how you feel about film, or entertainment, hopefully the the example works. Um, I guess some people feel that Alec Baldwin's performance in The Hunt for Red October was not the best characterization of Jack Ryan, who's a beloved character. Mm-hmm. And um, so they've challenged Baldwin on this over the years and said, you know, why did you take the role? Like, what were you doing? How did this even happen? And, and his response is that actors are a bit like plumbers. Um, you know, if someone says, do you want this role? They basically say yes. Just like if you call a plumber and say, can you fix my sink? The plumber doesn't respond and say, I'm, I'm really a specialist in toilets. Um, so, you know, what does this have to do with your question? Um, I think that in healthcare, just like in consumer products and just like in apparently in acting, um, we rarely turn people away. It happens. Uh, I mean, there are elite surgeons that can sort of pick and choose who they want to work with, but um, the majority of providers take every patient they can get and they treat them to their best of their ability. And they don't always say, you know what? We know of another specialist who we think is better suited to your case. There's so many examples of patients that go through the system at, you know, some for an extended period of time until they finally find the right provider because mm-hmm. so many providers are willing to just take another patient. On the flip side of this is the payer payers, just like providers, are changing, but they're not going away. And um, I think they are probably, as as a collective group, less interested in thinking of patients as consumers. They want to reduce consumption. Um, Their whole motive is is not to increase consumption. So uh, where does that leave the individual in terms of finding a really good relationship 
high engagement with the right provider for their individual circumstances. Um, you know, I think on, on some level, the entire system is set up to try and move people through a bit of an assembly line, a cookie cutter process, pick your favorite metaphor. And mm -hmm. it, fails so many of us who are over-treated, under-treated, um, we're, we're missing an opportunity for efficiency. And so when you begin to shift the power over to the patient, the consumer, for lack of a better term, to the individual, um, they can begin to make some decisions about, well, I want a second opinion or a third opinion before I get this elective procedure done, or maybe even a non-elective procedure done um, to make sure that they're really comfortable and have a good fit and uh, buy into their care plan, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the direction that we're headed in is a more informed, more engaged group of healthcare users, another inadequate term. I I think that idea of, it makes me think about kind of matching people. And so, for example, who would be the best provider for a specific individual uh, and their specific, not just their, not just their medical needs, right? Yes, their medical needs, but also who they are, how they relate. And there are a lot of factors in there, kind of cultural and, and mm. otherwise, mm -hmm. that people are starting. I see companies starting to approach that idea in, well, certainly in the dating arena. They've covered that in spades. Uh, but I've seen medical companies approach that around mental health and trying to match people with therapists who are more suited to treat mm. the whole individual, not mm -hmm. just. PTSD, for example, mm -hmm. um, but someone with PTSD who is an army veteran who, you know, served in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and is, you know, in their 20s and is now in their 40s and is lives in this place and has this kind of job and does this right kind of hobby. That yeah. idea of matching people up who are good fits for each other uh, to solve problems, to solve this kind of come to solutions together in the medical space. So I see that in behavioral health, yeah. certainly longstanding in the dating world. And do you see any of that kind of idea being helpful in how we think about connecting people with the right mm. healthcare users with the right specialist or provider or solution? You know, I, solution. I, I think we're seeing that there are some some business opportunities in this area where mm -hmm. um, players like Care.com or uh, um, some some direct pay mm -hmm. providers are behaving a little bit more like a concierge service and um, have a have a, a vested interest in helping a patient find the right solution. And uh, it, on one hand, it seems like an incremental step. Um, there's this thing that happens where you're dealing with a concierge who also needs a cut uh, before you even get 
to diagnostics and, and treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, it it's hiring someone to be your advocate. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a mix of both changes in consumer behavior where people learn to self-advocate. We're already seeing it, uh, as well as additional third-party services for fee, you know, unclear who pays, uh, probably some mix of payers, patients, and maybe even providers who pay referral fees uh, as, a, as a means of business development. Um, but some combination of these dynamics will help people identify the right care solution or at least a new care recommendation instead mm. of taking a unilater unilateral directive from their payer or, uh, for lack of a better term, standard provider. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's fascinating to think about that idea of having an advocate uh, or almost like a guide to walk you through who is perhaps a bit more impartial. Mm. Um, so I, I often say, if you ask a, if you ask a, a surgeon uh, what the solution should be, oftentimes, right? They we know what we know best, right? We know mm -hmm. what we know best, and so mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes the solution is surgery. You know, if you ask mm -hmm. someone who's an interventionalist, the solution is typically a, like a minimally invasive intervention. So it's kind of what tools do you, to your plumber analogy, what tools do you have? Which ones? do you know best and use? And uh, I think disassociating patient choice or healthcare user, healthcare consumer choice from that with an impartial person to say, hey, have you considered this, that, this, the other thing? Um, mm -hmm. Is, is in, an interesting way to kind of individualize care potentially moving forward or get people sooner, faster, the care they need and the providers they want. Right. Yeah. All right. So now that we've solved healthcare entirely, <laughs> uh, just to kind of with this idea of uh, individualizing messages, and you spent a lot of time in, in the retail side and moved mm -hmm. into the healthcare side. I mean, what are some of the things that you see that medical device, medtech, health tech, what do they need to know? Where do you see some of the gaps? Uh, what do they need to know about messaging? healthcare users, healthcare consumers, uh, this group of folks directly as more and more move into the space, whether it's home healthcare or otherwise. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are we missing? What do we need to know? So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a really big piece that stands out to me, which is that most healthcare marketing is not to the end user patient. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's not to the, or, or the consumer isn't necessarily synonymous with the patient. Often the consumer is the care provider. And so a, a huge percentage of marketing resources are committed to marketing a solution to care providers who then unilaterally deliver it to the patients. Mm -hmm. um, you know, of course we see big pharma and, and others have, consumer advertising campaigns for all kinds of um, drugs and, and treatments, solutions. 
I would argue that most of the big pharma advertising that we see is both to investors and potentially to patients. Um, that sort of advertising that exists for you know any major drug is not necessarily just marketed to the end user. Um, I think that's part of what we're going to see shift is that there will be an it will be necessary for major vendors, suppliers, let's say marketers to healthcare to market discreetly on the B2B side mm. and the B2B2C side so that you um, recognize that as the patient has more sway and more influence on their care plan, mm -hmm. they're going to want them to come in to the care provider asking for solutions by name. Um, again, we see a little bit of that, you know, ask your care provider about drug XYZ, but we're going to see that play out on a whole new level. Um, devices, um, particular types of treatments, um, it, things will have brand names that have not necessarily had brand names in the past where it won't just be relevant to the care provider. It'll be equally relevant to the patient. You know, exactly what type of implant am I receiving? Hmm. That, yeah, that makes sense. I, uh, I spoke with someone and I'll, I'll leave the specialty and the devices out of it, but I spoke to a specific specialist a few weeks ago and, uh, he shared that he has patients due to a certain recall that's happening right now that's well known mm. that uh, he has patients coming in saying, you know, and he's writing them for a specific device. And they're saying, you're not giving me that. Mm -hmm. Fill in the blank. One, right? So uh, I, I see that. Yeah, I see evidence of that in, you know, here and there of patients coming in advocating for themselves around devices with names. <laughs> Perfect. Right. I mean, let's, let's just look at diabetes. I think um, there's some leaders like Dexcom that mm. are way out in front at, at actually doing the kind of thing that I'm describing in terms of creating solutions that need to be marketed both to the providers as well as to the end user consumer patient. And mm. They're innovators, and I think it's the nature of their business that drives them to not just create an innovative product, but also find a slightly new way of bringing it to market by communicating to the the complete community, not just you know the traditional method of delivery. So, what are some of those things that that we need to be thinking about as kind of medical device, med tech, health tech marketers that we haven't in the past. I mean, like what is Dexcom doing that's uniquely like valuable and useful in kind of marketing to patients or in outreach or awareness raising or whatever it is? Mm. I wish I had um, uh, some of the specifics at the tip of my tongue, but I can say that uh, some of the things that we've seen I think it's related to Dexcom, but it's certainly in their category are things like models who are wearing a glucose monitor, a wearable glucose monitor on the runway in a visible and maybe even conspicuous way 
as a way of normalizing this. Um, mm. When we're seeing sponsorship of athletes who are using the same type of device to think about glucose level in training, not necessarily because they have some kind of acute diabetic condition. Um, mm -hmm. We see a device manufacturer uh, thinking broadly about how they bring value into the world, not just from a discrete diagnostic point of view, but mm -hmm. from a more holistic point of view, behavioral, mm -hmm. social acceptance, uh, you know, in a fashion context, that's new. And I mm -hmm. think that's e exactly where we're going. Okay. That was gonna be my next question. As you, as you see some of these things, the normalization, mm -hmm. the conspicuous wearing of certain uh, medical devices on the runway and with athletes, uh, where do you see this going in the future? You know, where do you think things are headed? From a messaging point of view, it's, it's the need to communicate with multiple audiences effectively. And that's, mm. you know, healthcare, we like to say healthcare is hard. This is just another one of those things where um, some consumer companies have the luxury of communicating in a, a slightly more one-dimensional way. Um, mm -hmm. Healthcare may never have that luxury. There will be this need to have multiple campaigns going after multiple segments that are both rigorously identified and, and then have their own individual messaging cultivated, developed, tested, validated, uh, and somehow complementary and appearing to come from a single voice, even though it's to two radically different audiences. Not easy. You know, this is, this is not classic consumer messaging, and it's definitely not classic medical marketing. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually doubling the work. Uh, maybe even there might even be a multiplier on it. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, what what that makes me think of is you can't just be like nine out of ten dentists prefer crust, <laughs> right? It can't be like that one size fits all message for everybody. That it has to be these discrete messages to discrete audiences. Um, well, really. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm sorry just to riff, but um, I think we'll get to the point where we don't care what the dentist thinks. We're going to want to hear nine out of ten people prefer crest. Moms they, with toddlers prefer right? Yeah, oh. like you know, I don't care what my dentist got paid to say anymore. That is that is fascinating. I, it also makes me think of, you know, particularly in the cancer arena, a lot of personalization, right? There's a lot of genetics uh, associated with the therapies there. And they're really looking at personalizing this to different genetic profiles. And so I, it seems mm. as if where this is going is understanding, let's say, the, the DNA of the person, but not, not in a literal way, but... With the demographics, right? Their behaviors, their kind of wants and needs and aspirations, um, in addition to kind of health, right? All the typical kind of health uh, analytics mm -hmm. that we take a look at, but understanding people more deeply and having, you know, not the one size fits all is, is what I think I'm hearing from you is that. 
Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Got it. All right, very cool. That's fascinating to think about. And that, uh, wow, the the analytics and the how that can happen and be done kind of efficiently and thoughtfully is very, very different than the way messaging has been done in the past. And so when you think about some of the hurdles to be, have these kind of like hyper-specific, you know, whether individualization or hyper-specific kind of segments, uh, what are some of the hurdles to doing that or getting there, managing it on from where people are today? So the, the amazing thing is, I think a lot of us, and by us, I mean um, marketers in healthcare mm. organizations, actually mm-hmm. know how to do this. Um, the, the difference is the rest of our organization may not be quite ready for it yet, but there's, mm. there's some commonality. There's, um, there's some great common vocabulary with some of our colleagues already. So um, marketing for years has done A-B testing. It's not mm-hmm. that different than doing a clinical trial. Um, you know, we have a ah. control group and then we have, um, you know, some other variables that we want to test and validate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that unusual to run a marketing validation campaign very much like uh, an assay of a whole range of different mm. uh, therapeutics to really Mm -hmm. figure out what works the best for a particular audience. Mm -hmm. There's this popular idea that marketing is very qualitative and maybe a little bit of magic or something that is hard to quantify. And while I am a believer that there's a poetic component that is really important, um, once that piece of the work has been done, it can be validated just like mm. any other part of a clinical or clinically oriented business. So finding that consistency in process with some of our other colleagues that are developing the product or the treatment or the service or whatever it is in a given healthcare organization um, and building some shared vocabulary around process, I mm-hmm. think is key. I think it's absolutely key. So there's um, internal buy-in, and if there's alignment in the organization, I think that's that does have a multiplier effect in terms mm-hmm. of the organization's ability to go and communicate externally. Um, should it be one team that's working on B two B and B two B two C, or are they two separate teams? How are they integrated? I think those are interesting questions that need to get answered at the organizational level. Obviously, the big difference for a startup company versus a, you know, multi-billion multinational. But um, aligning these these processes, I think we already have the tools. Mm-hmm. We just have to deploy them in a, in a, a fair and consistent way. And... Um, it does, it does nonetheless feel like an extra step for healthcare. I love, I just want to roll back to what you said about alignment in the organization and mm. processes. 
And you talked about this idea of testing variables, right? And that it's much like a clinical trial or R&D, right? Mm-hmm. Manufacturing, constantly testing, monitoring, uh, and, and looking at data. And so we can find what we can find a way to speak in a language that's similar. Uh, do you think that that helps in breaking down some of the silos and facilitating communication amongst the different amongst the different uh, <laughs> functions? Let's say. Yeah, I'd like to think that. I'd like to think that's true. Um, I mean, easier said than done, but I think it's part of the answer. Got it. I think one of the things that I found was was really interesting, and this is this keeps coming up. And uh, when you and I were emailing, mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, organizational alignment and brand voice, and this idea of organizational alignment and working together and breaking down silos and cross-functional teams has uh, on an unsolicited basis come up in every, with everyone I, uh, with whom I've spoken so far uh, for this podcast. So I was hoping you're the first one to mention brand voice though. So Mm. can you talk a little bit about brand voice and organizational alignment and how you've, how you see, how you view that and how we can think about that to uh, break down some of these barriers and build a stronger uh, organization. Sure. Um, this might be where my my consumer background um, influences me, and it mm-hmm. it may also be where I have more to learn in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, but in consumer in consumer focused businesses, having that brand identity or brand essence, it's, whether it's deliberately cultivated or whether it's a reflection of the founder, whether it's a mm-hmm. deliberately done or it's accidentally done, it, it doesn't matter. It always happens. I think in healthcare, very often we have um, science driven or medically driven businesses that may or may not have founders or leadership teams that have spent much time in the liberal arts. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some do, but not not as a rule. It's generally not the focus or the priority. Mm-hmm. And so um, the approach to communication from, I mean, I'm saying obvious stuff here, but the approach to communication from a, a, a healthcare or life sciences entity is very different than a toy company. Uh, for the toy company, it's easy to proceed with messaging about the joy that the product will bring. It's all about creating fun and somebody has a unique point of view on a modality of play and Mm -hmm. off to the races with a way of presenting this to the world. Uh, If you're an oncology focused entity, it's just not that easy. Um, And so how do you describe the solution that you're bringing forward without violating any rules about communication or over promising or all of the other constraints that come into play with healthcare? Um, usually there's some third party group, whether it's even your own internal marketing company or an external ad agency that has taken on the responsibility for describing the solution to some cancer problem. 
And meanwhile, everyone else is busy running clinical trials and focusing on how to grow the business and not really thinking about messaging as their primary focus. And that's a big gap to bridge. So um, from my point of view, um, that is one of the differences between consumer-oriented businesses and healthcare businesses is um, there are huge constraints on what you can or can't say uh, in both categories, in terms, you can't overclaim or overpromise. There's some regulation, but there's much more in life sciences. And um, I think finding a way of prioritizing brand voice for life sciences is an opportunity. Mm. Not everything is a toy company on the com- consumer side. There are life-changing products. Um, in consumer products where the best practices of communicating and expressing the companies, the brands, the products um, can be instructive to people in, in a medical field. So I think, uh, how do you bring that? How do you take away from that? I, there, there are um, major consumer brands that we're all familiar with that are easy examples. It's a point of cliche, whether it's Nike or McDonald's or Apple and, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I want to just gesture at those and say, ah, you know, here are some best practices. I'd like to go a little bit further and say, um, there's some work that those types of organizations do to really understand how their solution is different, why it brings value, why it's going to make the world a better place that then gets distilled into a message. And that process is the same in life sciences and healthcare. It might have more constraints. It might naturally have more gravitas. Uh, but the mm-hmm. fundamental process of, of developing a message to bring uh, a statement to the world, to market the company, the brand, the, the new product, um, requires this iterative process to really make sure you have internal buy-in and then some external validation before you run your campaign. And that's where that commonality comes in. It's a, it is at the core, a similar process. Um, making sure that the key stakeholders in a life sciences company actually have some vested interest in this instead of mm-hmm. enabling it to be some kind of burden or someone else's job or this, um, less interesting aspect of the business is key. I think founders, you know, they come in all colors and, and, and stripes. And some of them are great storytellers. Some of them are the best storytellers about why they did what they did and how it makes a difference. Um, but let's face it, some of them are also a little bit more comfortable in a lab coat and not mm-hmm. great storytellers. I think those are the ones that need the most help here. Those are the ones where marketing can play um, a, a completely transformative role for an organization that has potential to change the world, but needs a great way to tell its story. That's yeah, that's you touch on a couple of key points there uh, that I want to, it, it makes me think of one thing in particular, and that is startups. Mm-hmm. Talk about you know startups, kind of med tech, uh, 
thinking about this and how some of the best companies do this in consumer or kind of, you know, digital health consumer space. When should messaging, this idea, thinking about messaging start? Mm. You have this brilliant idea. Let's say you have a scientific, technical founder, founders, uh, very focused on like science and the tech and the clinical piece of it. Uh, oftentimes marketing gets, you know, they hire someone to do marketing kind of towards commercialization. Mm-hmm. They're lucky ahead of commercialization. <laughs> What, when is the right time to think about, and I, I agree that a full, full-time resource that's probably in and or about the right time, mm. uh, but when should they start thinking about messaging? Where in the process should they start thinking about it and why? You know, I, it's hard not to give a glib answer, but it, it's, it's a little bit, I'll play it back and, you know, in terms of um, some type of treatment, it's diagnostics the answer is as soon as possible as soon as you can as soon as you feel that little twitch um Mm. let's start talking about it and uh, there are always so many competing interests especially for founders who kind of have to do everything and Mm -hmm. um i think some of them initially are focused on communicating with uh, the peer review process and then uh, then thinking a little bit more about investors and communicating with investors mm-hmm. and depending on the scale and scope of the business um, you might have uh, some m a advisors that are already versed and how to position your particular solution within the investment community and so it feels like you're already doing some marketing and messaging and positioning but that's a different audience and so by the time you actually get to commercialization and you really need to scale, you need to do that thing that you promised your investors that you would do, you suddenly find that you're communicating with a completely different audience. Some of what has been done is probably applicable, um, but it might not just automatically cut and paste. There's probably mm-hmm. some additional work that needs to be done. And so it's this iterative, continuous process. and Some organizations might hire a full-time marketer right from the beginning who adjusts and adapts as you go. Others Mm -hmm. might find that there are different marketing resources at different stages. Um, I mean, my answer to this is a little bit like my comment about the condition of healthcare in general. It's it's very individual. It's individual based on the founder, based on the organization, Mm -hmm. based on the market conditions, based on the scope of the ambition of the company. I think it's a rare organization that onboards a really super talented marketer as part of the founding team that then goes the distance. I think Mm -hmm. that's unusual. Um, But I would say go for it if you can and make marketing an essential function in your organization from day one, that might pay dividends. There is, uh, yeah, understanding the customer or customers for the most part. Uh, the earlier you do that, the more, I think the better the product or service will be. Um, more clearly differentiated, will be clear about what resonates, what doesn't resonate, and hopefully can build those things in. Like you said, like from the beginning, if they were part of the founding team or right after, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have the ability to build into clinicals certain variables that may be very meaningful uh, to the folks who are going to be buying this or paying for it, whomever it may be. <laughs> A lot of things you can do along the way. So uh, the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about kind of the ecosystem. So for folks who are eyeing this like home health market that's starting to explode, right? Or the consumer health market, uh, whatever you might health tech market. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the things that we need to, that kind of the med tech medical device folks need to understand about that space, that ecosystem, uh, that are different than what they're accustomed to and selling to, let's say, a hospital where the hospital is the buyer, the ASC is the buyer, the IDN is the buyer. Hmm. Um, what are some of the considerations and what does that ecosystem look like? Hmm. It, it's funny, when you first said ecosystem, my mind leapt to, from, from the vendor point of view, how your products and services work together to deliver a, a solution. And I guess I'm thinking a little bit more in consumer terms again, which is how do all of these things that I'm using or being sold work together? But mm. I think you're bringing the B2B focus to the question. And so um, to try and answer the question, maybe maybe to bridge both points of view, um, I would say right parallel to this consumerization of healthcare is the digitization of healthcare. Mm. And, you know, it's always amazing to me, um, having worked for connected digital healthcare companies for the last, you know, almost 10 years, um, how many care providers push back and say, my patients don't have smartphones. And Mm. it's because a disproportionate number of patients are older and so that is the one last demographic segment that hasn't fully adopted the smartphone. Although smartphone adoption in terms of national population is like over 90%. So it's, it's there. But because smartphones are so ubiquitous and so widely adopted by almost every segment, people want to communicate through their primary mode. And, you know, just to take an unfair shot at healthcare. It's like the last industry vertical that still likes fax machines. You kind of saw that coming, right? Um, you know, yeah. uh, when, when your care provider says, um, you know, can I fax this to you or can you fax this to me? And like, I don't know how they keep doing it day after day with the majority of their patients saying, I don't know how to do that. I don't have a fax machine. I don't know where to find a fax machine. Um, and yet it continues. So I guess my point, though, is from an ecosystem point of view, is finding ways and to bring tie this back to messaging is finding ways to enable people to communicate in the modes that are easiest and most Mm -hmm. effective. And so if that's using an app, that means you got to develop an app. Great. I mean, it's an easy leap over to what's happened for the past couple of years in adoption of remote monitoring and telehealth and mm-hmm. all of those services were so widely deployed at incredible velocity because everybody already had the tools. They just weren't using them yet. And so there's this open question about whether or not that stuff continues. It's not a question. 
course it's going to continue. Um, so where's the ecosystem? Well, it's, it's how do all the players make it easy to interoperate with computers and smartphones and tablets and texting and email and whatever other communication channels are needed. Um, I don't know. I hope I didn't go too far off on a tangent here, but when you say ecosystem, I, I, as I said, I see these two sides of it, both from Mm -hmm. the B2B side and then the consumer side. And I want my care provider to be in my ecosystem, which is I'm using my smartphone all Mm -hmm. the time. And the truth is my care provider is too. And so it's just better if we can do that together. Um, Build services that do that. That, uh, That makes complete sense. Looking where people are, what they currently do, and building things to live inside their workflow. Mm-hmm. Right? Not adding things on, not making them jump through hoops, not making them go into your, you know, seven different portals for seven different providers. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, make it easy, make it simple, make it meaningful. And send me the text message to remind me about my appointment. Mm-hmm. Give me a portal where I can specify my preferences if I don't want to get a text message, mm-hmm. if I prefer an email. You know, do those things that some, frankly, some consumer companies are already good at. Um, let me opt in, opt out, specify preferences, and that way the engagement with the individual is going to have a higher chance of success. People will show mm-hmm. up to their appointment on time for the procedure they were expecting to get. <laughs> That is always a good thing. Always a good thing. Uh, so a uh, couple final questions. I just want to tell us a little bit about these Nerf branded iPod covers in oh. the Apple store. I'm super curious about that. Huh. So um, this was uh, actually it wasn't an academic piece. It was um, in a prior career. Mm. I worked for a company that made um, video game accessories and they saw the rise of uh, or the adoption of mobile handsets and smartphones as a potential threat to video games that hasn't quite played out people still play xbox and playstation but Mm -hmm. at that moment in time in order to defend its core business um the company was looking for somebody to help launch them into mobile channels And that's an area that I've been in. And that's kind of how I came into healthcare. Um, So we had a license from Hasbro for Nerf. And we made Nerf covers for the iPod Touch. And we sold them exclusively to the Apple Store. And for a period of time, it was the number one selling case or cover for Mm -hmm. an Apple device in the Apple Stores. And if you think about it, it's brilliant. I mean, the the demo, the sales demo was fantastic. I'd literally take an iPod Touch and not just drop it, but throw it on the floor as hard as I possibly could. It would bounce. (laughs) It was was absolutely fantastic. Um, For whatever reason, the company moved off of that. And I'm not sure if there are any Nerf cases being made today, but that's, I think, an evergreen opportunity for people who want mobile cases. I think they're slightly chunkier than some of the cases that are in vogue today, 
But right. we all have kids that are using our hand-me-down iPhones that need some protection, and kids love Nerf. So that is very true. Now, I love I love a couple of things you mentioned there, and that is you. We all I don't. I'll speak for myself. I have a very positive association with Nerf, right? Nerf footballs, a lot of joy and fun, and a kind of like emotional connection to it. Uh, great demo, right? You're not not burying me under a 60 slide deck to explain the benefits of this. Mm-hmm. It's literally it's something fun, that, right? Throw it on the ground and you know that's going to happen. So we all drop it, our phones and our other devices on the ground all the time. Yep. So sometimes harder than others. Concrete versus a rug. Or I- floor. It's like it's like you were flying the wall in some of my my presentations. Um, you know, just in terms of sales best practices, it would be great to get a meeting with Walmart or Target or Apple or Best Buy, and it's sort of standard practices to block out an hour. But if my job was to come in and present Nerf, I'd start the meeting by saying, "This is going to take five minutes, and I'll give you back the rest of your day." <laughs> Nobody ever says that. And say that the product, you know, you already know the brand, you already know the name, all of the points mm-hmm. you just made. And say, here is an iPod Touch. Pass it around the room. Everybody can see it's a real iPod Touch. Put it in the case and just throw it on the floor. And it's a meeting is adjourned. <laughs> that, that was it. Um, there are a few products that... Um, have such facility for complete understanding among diverse audiences mm-hmm. and um, it's on brand. Mm-hmm. It's consistent with brand voice. It's consistent with everything the brand represents. Um, and, you know, it, it basically would conclude the meeting and the, without fail, a buyer would say, yeah, just send the setup sheet. Just that's it. Um, now, how do you translate that into healthcare? Um, it's something that I still try to do sometimes when meeting with new partners is to say, mm-hmm. you know, I, I will take as much time as we need, but if I can give you back some of your day today, I'd be glad to do it. Um, mm-hmm. How can I make this as easy as possible for my partner? And I think that's another area where um, some consumer expertise and healthcare expertise could be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the instinct of many salespeople is to take as much time as they can possibly get. If the meeting runs over, they'll keep taking it. And instead to say to somebody, you know, I, are we on the same page? I think we've understood, are we good here? Is there anything else I can do for you today? And if not, I, I can get out of your way now. I know what I need to send you. I'm going to follow up in 24 hours and get you what you need. I think is always welcomed, whether it's in a consumer context or a healthcare context. Mm-hmm. Just some very basic best practices that I think never go out of style. I love that idea. That's very <laughs> counterintuitive. I've definitely heard the I'm going to take my unfair share of resources. I'm going to, right? So yeah, it's a very different mentality. Uh, I love that. I think that's a great way to think about it. And it's a great way to think about it. So last couple questions. Uh, We covered a lot today. 
Uh, and kind of our three final questions. Uh, what is the best thing about working from home? Uh, uh, personally or professionally? Your choice. Because I see them sort of discreetly. On a personal note, it's been, uh, well, I've actually had work from home jobs since before the pandemic. And, and the best thing about it is the time I get to spend with my kids. Awesome. Uh, if you could travel, let's, let's presume all borders are open. Uh, if you could travel anywhere in the world today, where would you go and why? Oh, wow. That, that's a really tough one. Um, I really enjoy traveling and it's always a struggle to decide whether to go back to some favorite places or to try something new. Mm. And especially coming out of a, a time when, you know, we've all been locked down and traveling less, that choice is more difficult than ever. I think that the first impulse is go back and see some favorites that I'm missing, but mm. uh, there's no substitute for the, uh, the experience of a new place. And I'm, I'm really fortunate. I just got back from Barcelona. It was sort of my first international trip in two years. I went for mobile world Congress. And um, it was fantastic. So where would I go next? Um, I personally am struggling right now with the dreaming about could there be a late season ski trip? Mm. Or do I need to start thinking more in terms of spring or summer? And so they're sort of different destinations. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, these days I think I would, I would be really happy with a long weekend in Manhattan. <laughs> you know, I guess that's a little close to home for you, but um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think I'll go with that. Change of scenery. Exactly. That's Simple, all it takes. Uncomplicated. There you go. You get there on the train. Don't even have to drive. Uh, all right. One last question. Uh, what is one thing that most people don't know about you that you would like to share? Wow. So I would say that um, uh, most people don't know that as an undergraduate student, I was a theater minor. And so I spent a bit of time doing acting and playwriting. Mm -hmm. And uh, that probably came out earlier in the interview when I mentioned liberal arts. So, mm -hmm. um, and it's probably why I gravitate to storytelling and see the importance of messaging in in the enterprise and what we're whatever we're trying to accomplish in business. So I think there are relatively few of my colleagues or business partners that know that about me. Um, maybe they will, or maybe they won't be surprised. <laughs> well, I think that's that's great because storytelling is so critical to you know, being a CEO, being in marketing, business development, sales, all of those things, right? It's understanding what people are interested in and, and telling a compelling story. So yep. it's a great way to end. So uh, thank you so much for your time today. Very much appreciate it. Love hearing all your ideas about sales and marketing and messaging and whatever we end up calling the consumerization of healthcare. <laughs> individualization of healthcare, et cetera. Uh, and uh, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
Mm-hmm.